Professor at San Diego State University. Judy Crow, I'm on the faculty at Penn State University. Leo Osterhout, uh, I'm the faculty at the University of Washington. Nicole Wichel, uh, faculty at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Charlie Wilson, UTSA. And guys, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So uh, today's kind of a special day. We are doing a panel discussion for our annual symposium. Our theme today has been the bilingual brain. Um, and it's been said a number of times over the course of the day that the bilingual brain is not merely the sum of two monolingual brains, which is, I think, a great quote because it's not apparent or obvious to many of us who don't actually study language. Um, but I have to say that the picture I have in, in my head of the bilingual brain is like an extremely busy place with a lot of potentially expensive extra computation going on, um, including inhibition of information and attention to cues to channel information flow. Um, yet this extra cognitive load is, is what we think confers what we call the bilingual advantage. So I was hoping you could... Somebody, one of, one of you could talk to us about the, what the bilingual advantage is, and then maybe can each of you say something from your unique perspectives, uh, from your unique research vantage points, about this idea that pushing the computational limits of the language system can be advantageous for cognition in general. I'd just like to say to start uh, that I'm not sure that we want to assume that bilinguals are pushing their computational limits. I don't think we should necessarily assume that we evolved to speak one language. There are too many people in the world who speak more than one language to assume that monolingualism is the norm. So I think that you're quite right that all the evidence points to there being uh, a very active and dynamic uh, situation for bilinguals. Uh, but I don't think it's necessarily uh, sort of above and beyond what, what we want considered to be the norm. Uh, and I think it's important to take that as, as a baseline in, in thinking about where these advantages might come from. Great, noted. So can we talk about some of these advantages? Sure. Um, the, uh, there, there really are three domains in which uh, advantages have been uh, studied. Uh, there are, well, there, there are three different groups of bilinguals for whom uh, this work has, has uh, revealed advantages. There are bi young bilingual children, uh, bilingual infants. One of the things that we haven't talked about today is none of us on the panel today uh, does research on uh, infants, uh, but there's very exciting work being done uh, in a number of different places in the world, in Janet Worker's lab, at the University of British Columbia uh, and Nuria Sebastian Galez's lab and, uh, in Barcelona. And what we know is that uh, young infants, very young infants, are not only able to discriminate their two languages, um, but they are able to, uh, young, young infants exposed to more than one language are able to keep their system open uh, in a way that persists relative to their monolingual counterparts and that contrary to the view that bilingual learning babies will be disadvantaged and that it's really a bad thing for parents to speak two languages to young children, that um, these uh, very young infants seem to be able to handle that input. The trajectory of their development is a bit different than it is for monolingual infants, but in fact, by the time they're, uh, you know, I don't know, 10 months, 12 months of age, uh, they are quite capable of, of uh, perceiving and uh, speech sounds in both of their languages. 
things, and it seems to have very little uh, negative impact uh, later in their uh, lives. And there's some recent evidence suggesting that bilingual uh, infants are actually quite good at paying attention to cues that signal one of their two languages uh, and at being able to do uh, cognitive tasks. And you have to be very, people who've done this research are extremely clever in how they design experiments to figure out what's in a baby's head. Uh, and they show that a baby watching a little puppet scenario uh, is very sensitive to cues that are present uh, that would allow them to know when to switch their attention uh, from one event to, a, to another. Uh, and that, that that benefit seems to occur just by virtue of their, they're not bilinguals, but they are by virtue of their being exposed to two languages from, from birth. And then there's research on bilingual children. Much of it's been done by Ellen Bialystok, and, and now there is a, a great interest in, in pursuing this, this work more broadly, um, showing that uh, young bilingual children, so children who are three and four years of age and who are pre-literate, um, are better able to switch attention between tasks, to ignore irrelevant information, uh, and to, uh, you know, to be able to attend to uh, uh, information that, uh, that, that really uh, differentiates a situation where there may be some conflict present. Um, there's similar research on young adult bilinguals. The work on young adult bilinguals is a little more subtle because young adult bilinguals are thought to be at their cognitive peak, and we won't say how old you have to be or <laughs> not be before you fall off the cognitive peak. Um, and um, but the, the most dramatic recent work is, is this work with um, bilingual elderly um, that shows that uh, all people, after a certain point in time, begin to show effects of cognitive aging. Um, generally, we can think about those effects as uh, a sort of distractibility type effects. Uh, and what the research shows is that bilingualism seems to offer a degree of protection against the rate of cognitive aging um, to the point where, uh, as I mentioned in my talk earlier today, a uh, number of recent studies have shown that uh, bilinguals uh, seem to be protected against the onset of Alzheimer's-type symptoms. They're not protected against Alzheimer's disease, they're protected against the symptoms. And the notion here is that there is uh, what's been called cognitive reserve, the idea that all of this wild activity that you referred to a moment ago uh, is mapping onto uh, a kind of exercise function so that the bilingual's brain is constantly being exercised uh, in a way that creates expertise that then allows them to better uh, compensate for other kinds of cognitive challenges they may face later in life. Karen, your work adds another layer of complexity to this by looking at bimodal bilinguals. And could you comment on maybe some of the things that you talked about based yeah. on your Yeah, so we're looking a little bit differently. We've been looking at how knowing and learning a sign language um, can impact visual-spatial abilities um, because as you learn a sign language, there are certain requirements that sign language processing has in terms of um, how you express spatial relationships, um, how you understand spatial descriptions that require a certain amount of um, uh, spatial um, uh, mental imagery and um, uh, transformation that seems to um, transfer to non-linguistic abilities. So we see um, enhanced mental imagery, uh, mental rotation abilities in 
um, signers compared to, to non-signers. Um, there's also aspects of face processing um, that seem to be enhanced, in particular the ability to discriminate facial features. Um, for ASL, American Sign Language, one of the ways you convey grammatical information is through specific facial features and uh, facial expressions. And so the idea is that practice discriminating those particular linguistic signals transfers to your ability to analyze the face in general. And we see changes in um, brain areas related to um, uh, face processing in bimodal bilinguals. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we're also interested in whether or not these same kind of cognitive enhancements that Judy's talking about with respect to inhibition and control also are found in our bimodal bilinguals. Now, we've conducted just one, just one study where we compared ASL English bilinguals, <coughs> monolinguals, and Spanish English, or no, uh, just bilinguals of different types on these cognitive control tasks. And we, uh, this is also with Alan Bialystok. And we find um, evidence for enhanced um, control in the unimodal bilinguals, that is the spoken language bilinguals, compared to monolinguals. But we didn't find it for the bimodal bilinguals. And one interesting possibility is that one of the reasons you see these um, enhancements in spoken language bilinguals is because they really have to control their two languages because um, you can't produce a Spanish word and an English word at the same time. You have to, if you're going to switch, you have to turn off English, switch to Spanish, and then if you want to switch back, you turn off Spanish and switch to English. Bimodal bilinguals have this unique ability to code blend, to produce um, a spoken word and an ASL sign at the same time. So they don't have quite the same challenges um, that unimodal bilinguals have in terms of language output. They don't have to completely shut off their um, ASL to speak English or English to speak ASL. They can do those at the same time. In addition, they don't face the same challenges in perception. So their languages come in different um, perceptual systems. So I have an instant cue. If I see the hands moving, I know it belongs to ASL. If I hear um, the input, I know it's English. So you have an instant discriminability, a very solid cue. So it's possible that um, it's, we, we don't see these advantages for bimodal bilinguals in this domain because it's just not as hard. It's not the same kind of challenge. Now, a lot more research is needed to, to figure out at what, at what point these, these input-output constraints cause the effect versus really juggling two lexicons, two syntaxes, and to figure out when you see the effects. Nicole? Sorry. So, Karen, as you, uh, as you were saying that, I was wondering um, what you would expect to see in deaf bilinguals. Uh, who speak two sign languages. Oh, right. So, um, yeah, because they would be unimodal. Um, <laughs> unimodal in, in a different in modality. So we're, we're actually starting to think about doing that. It's a little tricky because most deaf bilinguals are also bilingual in the surrounding spoken language. So they may not, um, uh, for, for example, in this country, ASL, deaf ASL English um, bilinguals, they may not speak English, but they're very bilingual. So, um, it, you know, reading, writing English. So they know English in addition to ASL. Um, so what we're planning, what we're thinking of doing is um, taking signers who are bilingual in two sign languages. Those bilinguals also know the surrounding spoken language. So we're thinking of doing it with maybe um, Irish sign language and British sign languages are completely different sign languages or British sign language and Indian sign languages. We have colleagues in, in um, Britain who work in India. We can compare that group 
with um, our ASL, sort of English bilingual, so they don't know another sign language, they may, and so we can see if we see the effect for those um, sort of unimodal in the sign modality. It's a little tricky because they're all sort of trilingual in, in, in essence, but we can at least compare those groups. Mm-hmm. So, Judy, you mentioned... Um, oh, sorry, did can you I want to comment on that? Karen a question? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, Karen, if, if, um, if bimodal bilinguals are able to use the, uh, you know, the, 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 the clear differences between the languages as cues, why do you find in the research that you presented today that they continue to do this code blending even when they speak to monolingual English speakers who don't know sign? Why is that not sufficient to turn off the sign? I think it's there's there's two two answers. One is um, I'm thinking about perception, mm-hmm. so comprehension, um, where you get these. So so I'm thinking more of the the work with the babies where they have to distinguish this. You know, whereas whereas um, uh, bimodal bilingual babies don't have that same challenge. Um, but the other thing that's different is just the presence of co-speech gesture, right? So the fact that when you're speaking your um, spoken language, right, you're producing co-speech gestures, and that's the avenue that allows the sign language to just come out in this way so that you don't have to turn it off. Whereas for unimodal bilinguals, you do. I can't come out with a... Except that <laughs> in um, research that you've published with Jenny Pyers on facial expressions, mm-hmm. you show that... Um, Bimodal bilinguals continue to some degree to That's produce right. facial expressions when they speak to non-signers, even though uh, it seems as if the non-signers could easily misinterpret the emotional effective message in those facial expressions. That's true, because what, what Jenny uh, Pyers has found is if you um, are speaking to a non-signer and you're producing WH or what type questions, which in ASL require furrowed brows, which is furrowed brows is an angry expression. And so you're producing this angry expression at someone, but you're really just asking a WH question. <laughs> um, and so, you know, they, they um, you know, reduce it compared to other things that don't have that pragmatic um, content, but still more than monolingual. So it's, it's true that these things kind of leak through in a way that they're not controlling them in the same way. So um, I guess I would argue that there are fewer differences between the bimodal bilingual and the unimodal bilingual than we might expect. I'll grant you that. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to get, since since the title of our symposium is The Bilingual Brain, I do want to get more into brain activity and, and structural changes that we see in, in the brain with language, uh, new language acquisition. So, Lee, um, you've shown, and this actually comes also from what brought it to mind was when you started talking about the baby um, experiments. Lee, you've shown um, robust and dynamic changes in uh, adult brains during language acquisition uh, that actually precede changes in, in language proficiency, or, or uh, proficiency actually is a tough word that I actually want to talk about a little bit later, too. Um, what does this mean for ideas about critical periods for language? Does anybody talk about that anymore? Some people talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, that's a that's a vexed question there, a vexing question. Um, that's my our, job. That's right. <laughs> well, I think that what our research shows is that uh, at least into you know late college age, um, there's just a tremendous facility for acquiring some aspects of the second language. But don't forget that there's a, there are also there's also compelling evidence for obstacles to that. So I think I am in answering a question. I alluded to the possibility that or to the reality that 
uh, L1, L2 differences are profound. So if you have a grammatical rule that's not in your L2, then that's very can be very difficult to acquire. Can you just explain L1? Sure. So L1 would be the first language. L2 is your second language. So if there's some grammatical rule in your second language that you're trying to learn that you don't have in your first language, then even if the rule is simple, very simple and regular, that can be extremely difficult to learn. But by learning, what I mean is not doing well on the tests that test your knowledge, like a Spanish test. I mean, incorporating that knowledge into the, the brain processes which allow you to understand language in real time. And so there are some things that are very resistant to learning. The flip side of that is if it's similar to your first language, then you can learn it incredibly quickly. So just a matter of, of months of just going to class is enough for you to instantiate that rule in your brain in a way that you've instantiated your lifelong rules of your L1. And it's very hard to see any difference. So there are limits to learning a second language. And um, I think they have more to do with similarity between the first and second language than with age, but that's my personal my personal way. Would you expect to see what would you expect to see for acquisition of of uh, a, a bimodal language? So if so. <laughs> My head's spinning thinking about it. <laughs> so just, I, I know nothing about sign language. Is the structure, so the structure is very different from, I mean, I guess all languages are very different in structure. And I guess this gets to the question of whether language structure matters when you're looking at brain measures of, of, um, active, of, uh, of semantic or lexical uh, activity. That's a great question. <laughs> so, for example, uh, in ASL, there are some linguistic devices that are, you can make analogies to spoken language, you know, to English. Whereas there are other devices that, that don't easily map on. So I guess my prediction would be that if I'm a native English speaker trying to learn ASL, then I can predict that some of those ASL constraints will be easily acquired and others will be very difficult to acquire, in the sense that I meant acquiring a rule. Do you agree? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly what I mean. That, I mean, no one is, there's, there's no evidence, or very little evidence about this. I mean, maybe somebody in the audience knows about um, second language learning for, for ASL. There haven't been that many studies on it, but my intuitions are the same as yours, that things that map on, if you're a native English speaker and you're learning ASL, um, that are similar structures, you're going to have an easier time learning things that are, are very different. So topicalization, um, verb morphology, there's a lot of aspect morphology in ASL. These uh, facial expressions that convey grammatical information um, about, you know, conditionals and topics, those those are the things that are, are difficult, and you learn those in ASL 4, not in ASL 1. And so I, I, oh, sorry. Excuse me. So I think that the reverse might happen, too. So if you're a deaf person who's learned ASL and is proficient in that, then if, when it comes to learning to read, let's say, English, then you would think that you might get some benefit from the grammatical constructions that are in your first language. Now English is your second language. So I would think you would predict those kinds of effects, too. That's right. So I was actually going to say that um, based on what you were saying about word order and the flexibility that you have in ASL because of all the markers um, and, and the syntactic markers, uh, would you consider those morph morphosyntactic markers, by the way? Or are they considered... They have a different term, I'm sure. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there's... <coughs> There's some um, actually debate within um, linguistics about exactly how to analyze these facial expressions as um, they certainly convey syntactic information. Um, whether they're, they're um, morphemes of the, of the same type or whether, I mean, some um, linguists have analyzed these as more prosodic 
kinds of, of structures rather than morphemes. So, as I was going to say, that uh, languages like Spanish are actually also very they have very flexible word order because of all the morphology on the words. And so, I, I, if if that's the case, then I would expect that ASL uh, speakers could learn Spanish better than English uh, in, in in some regards to with, with regard to that type of syntactic movement. So, I'm a prediction for the future. I don't know because Pilar Pinar is looking at deaf learners of Spanish, but I don't know if she's looked at that particular question. I don't know. We've, there's some evidence that there's a benefit uh, to deaf learners uh, in terms of uh, acquiring sensitivity to phonology in English, which is a very difficult thing to acquire if, if you don't have speech. Um, and the question is whether learning Spanish as a third language might advantage deaf learners of English, and the little bit of evidence suggests that it might, that in fact deaf learners are remarkably sensitive to the nuances of phonology in, in English um, if they have been exposed to Spanish. Now, the issue that can't be ruled out is whether deaf learners who pursue foreign language study may be a very special subset mm -hmm. of, of deaf learners who have really self-selected themselves, and that, that has to be determined. So I, I just want to back up uh, again another sort of big, very big question um, that you can take as, as you will. I thought maybe since we have this group of varied people with varied backgrounds, um, we could talk about the progression and the levels of understanding about um, language processing that we can glean from various different traditions. Like, for, for example, uh, I guess the origins are in linguistics, and then, you know, sort of they move to behavioral cognitive studies, which... I, all of you do in, in some capacity. And then, you know, we move into more qualitative measures of, of, of how uh, uh, language processing affects brain activity, ERPs and EETs. And I, I guess now we're moving toward more quantitative ways of determining um, how neural activity and, and structural changes in the brain happen during during language processing. Can you guys say something about that? Where where, where are we headed with this? Are, I know, Lee, you're involved in, in a, a lot of, uh, of this stuff. Can you, can you comment? Well, I think uh, the beauty of being alive now is because we have so, such a range of possibilities that we didn't have when I started in the field uh, a number of years ago. Um, so, for example, the technique that I use is very sensitive to qualitative differences. Um, it's also sensitive to quantitative differences in terms of the amplitude of the effect. So we have access to both types of information. But if you look at the larger picture, I mean, people have been doing... Uh, studies measuring gray matter and tissue, or even now white, uh, white matter, fiber tract thickness, and so on. And those structural aspects of the brain also change with all kinds of experience, including linguistic experience. So I think we're in a, uh, right now it's a tremendous time to, to see what changes with experience, what type of experience being linguistic experience, see how general those changes are, how specific they are, uh, the rate at which the changes occur, what they, how well they predict a person's fluency as measured with other ways. So there's, it's a really rich possible a space of possible questions one could ask with the tools we have available. We just started doing that. And uh, maybe the linguists in the audience can speak to this a little better, but uh, there's, there's also a, an important movement uh, of these techniques into other fields. And specifically in linguistics. So, as I mentioned um, uh, right before uh, Lee's talk, is that neurolinguistics has become really um, um, 
there's a movement in neurolinguistics to really look at brain measures uh, in in tracking these uh, linguistic processes in real time. Um, a lot of linguistic data historically was looking at at language and describing what the language, what was happening in the language, the rules of the language, and now we can actually look at what's happening with those elements of language in real time in 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 the brain. So that in that regard, I have sort of a question because um, in the event-related potentials, which you speak of as a kind of language-related potential. But is it really language, or does it just have to do with expectation? So if Bullwinkle says, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat, and he pulls out that lion's head, then would I have a big N400 at that point? Well, I think, it, should I answer this, or is someone else? I, 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 I can use the best person <laughs> I think it's clear with respect to the N400, which is, uh, in the language context, it's elicited by words that uh, um, that aren't expected in terms of their meaning, so they're contextually not appropriate. It's also, uh, the N400 amplitude is a function of many things, including word frequency. So even, even within the linguistic domain, there's more than one variable you can manipulate that can affect the amplitude of the component. Um, Going in the other direction, if you do watch a videotape, like uh, my friend Tatiana Sinikova and her colleagues showed, if you watch a videotape and uh, it shows her husband there sha- or getting ready to shave, he's got the shaving cream on his face, his hand goes out of the screen, and you're expecting him to bring up a razor, but he's got a rolling pin. And so that's not language, but that is concept- a string of con- conceptual information, and you have the expectation for a certain kind of thing. And if you presents, if something else happens that you're not expecting, you get a very big N400 effect to that. So it's, I'd say it's conceptual, but of course language is supposed to convey conceptual information, so these are just tokens of to something bigger, and that would be our conceptual knowledge and our construction of ideas in our mind as we listen to language or see it, see things in the world. So no, it's not specific to language, but it is, seems to be specific to our conceptual understanding and processing. In terms of... Uh, you know, the response to syntactic anomalies, the P600, it's really sensitive to that. It's not sensitive to manipulations of meaning. But again, you have to ask, you know, is it just syntax or is it something broader? And in fact, a lot of things that are improbable elicit positive waves. We did a study showing that there's one, I should say, there's this one component called the P300, which is elicited by all kinds of surprising, unexpected events. So we did an experiment to see if the P600 that's elicited by ungrammatical things it's just another P300 surprising event. One way to test that is to use an additivity approach. So uh, Helmholtz uh, showed many years ago that electrical fields propagating through tissue summate where they intersect. And so if you have two different neural generators, one that produces P300 and one that produces P600, if they're both elicited at the same time, the effects should add together. And we did a study showing that, yes, if you have an unexpected event and you have an ungrammaticality and you put them together, you get the summation of both of those positivities. So that's suggesting that they're different. Having said that, you know, you have to ask, I ask myself this all the time, is syntax really different from everything else? And my answer is no. Uh, There's something different about it. But we deal with all kinds of structured events in our lives. And uh, syntax is a very sophisticated kind of structural processing. Um, But I think there's also a common thread among all those structured things that we can do as humans and I really believe, if you want to know what I actually believe, I do think that the P, there's, there are certainly differences to be, to be made, but there's a class of things that are not just linguistic, 
but that involve complex structural processes. And that's what I think this brain response to P600 reflects. But um, it's very hard to definitively say, you know, it's, it's just this or just that. But my feeling is that it's broader than just syntax. But I think syntax itself, construed properly, is also broader than just syntax. So what, what uh, sorry, just to follow up, I mean, so a critical point here is that uh, there's there's sort of two two elements here. Is you you can you can misinterpret this the these brain potentials and interpret them as language specific, or you can note that these brain potentials, wherever they're coming from, are very sensitive to linguistic information. And I think that uh, Lee and I are both in the latter. Uh, that that you you're taking advantage of something that the brain does very well and consistently, and you use that measure to to understand what's happening in the brain with uh, with regard to language. And I would just say, make one last point. I agree with you, but it's that you know, it's not if it was just surprising things. Everything you could present would be a positive way, you know, P three hundred or whatever. But that's not the case. You know, the brain is showing a clear distinction between uh, meaning and form, grammatical meaning and linguistic form, which is fundamental to linguistic theory. And I think our our evidence shows that that's a very real distinction. Right. And you also see P six hundred to to musical uh, syntax violations yes, in, in in other domains. So it's not just language. Yeah. Are we ever going to be able to to localize the neural sources of these ERP effects, these averaged effects? So. Somebody, I don't remember who told me this, somebody I just spoke to said that they're working on uh, fast uh, MRI, uh, optical imaging MRI, where they can actually get the timing and the localization. And this is the critical problem, is that uh, most of the techniques that, that have very good localization, like fMRI and PET, have a very slow uh, recording time. So you're looking at data over seconds. And, uh, and we've seen from our ERP data that there's a lot going on in the first 500 milliseconds. And in fact, most has gone on in the first, uh, first 500 milliseconds. Uh, but, but you look like you want to say something. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I have slides I didn't talk about. It. We, we haven't published this yet. But um, you know, I'm not interested really in localizing the anomaly we I'm interested in knowing what happens in your brain when everything's going just fine. So what we've done, and I, I don't have my slides here to describe this as well as I'd like to, but it turns out that if you look at a well-formed sentence, well, we know that the window of time when the brain is really sensitive to the meaning of a word is between about 300 and 500 milliseconds after the word's been presented. You get an N400 effects within that window. And we know that within between 500 and 6, 700, 800 milliseconds, that's where we see really big P600s, the syntactic anomalies. So we've looked at perfectly well-formed sentences, and we've done distributive source analysis of just that window in time when the brain is really sensitive to meaning, and that window of time when the brain is really sensitive to grammar. And what we find is that in the meaning-related uh, part of the waveform, uh, we see a lot of temporal, pro post, uh, <laughs> temporal parietal activity, and left lateralized, and in the syntax part, we see a lot of Broca's area left lateralized activity. What's really interesting is if you take a language like Japanese, uh, where uh, the case markers tell you what to do, the case marker gives you syntactic and semantic information at the same time. Some Japanese people show, show when they get a case marked word in a normal sentence, this does have an ending, by the way, this story. But if, <laughs> if you have a sentence that's got a noun with a case marker on it, they seem to have more activity in the front part of the head, near Broca's area. That means they're paying more attention to the grammatical information, and some people have pay more attention to the semantic stuff when they have more posterior activation in well-formed sentences. But the beauty is that for those Japanese people who have more activation in the, the Broca's area, if you make that an ungrammatical word by attaching the wrong case marker, then what you see to that ungrammatical 
uh, word is a P600. But for people who have more activity in the back of the head when they're processing that normal word, they're paying more attention to meaning. The same, very same anomaly to them produces a nice big N400. So the same stimulus, you can predict why your brain response will see simply by looking at the distribution in the brain of the activity to the well-formed strain before you break it. And, and, uh, and that reminds me of something else. <laughs> so, um, so there's uh, some work, uh, part of it was my dissertation, but uh, looking at, at prediction in, in a sentence context and, uh, and the idea of whether you're actively predicting information in advance before before you see it based on the context that you're reading. And um, uh, I did this in Spanish, and the way what I was interested in is finding out if people were uh, activate, pre-activating information about a word um, before they actually got to it. And in Spanish, uh, because you have an adjective, an, uh, sorry, an article that precedes the noun, and that article is marked for gender, uh, if you switch the gender of the word, like let's say you're expecting a uh, uh, broom, which would be la escoba in Spanish, and has a feminine marked gender, uh, and then you get el in the sentence context. There's there's nothing actually wrong at that point in the sentence to indicate that you've you've uh, uh, done that. There's anything wrong because you could continue the sentence with something else. But you actually have a brain response to that gender marking, which is grammatical information, purely grammatical information, um, and you get an N400, and that's an indication that you have this confluence of uh, of uh, both the syntactic and the semantic information that is uh, actively being used as you as you go through the sentence. And so you can get different types of brain responses depending on how you're actually using that information at that moment in time. So I want to um, just return, uh, just close with um, maybe uh, a question about a return to bird song as a potential model system for language. Maybe not so much bilingual. I was thinking, I, I don't know if Todd Troyer's here, but I was wondering if there is a model, or if there's a bird species. Is he here? No, actually, but I, but there's a bat species. That's you remember you remember the bat guy that came uh, last Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so Yes. Turns out, it's turn, you know, yeah. So it turns out that that bats uh, are very good code switchers. Uh, bats uh, speak radar and they speak squeaks, and and they switch between these. Uh, uh, very quickly, and so I talked to him about this and thought, you know, maybe we can use this as a model for for uh, language switching or you know, in 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 a, an animal species. And they, they actually go through them very quickly, and they eat. eat dif- they have different. They convey different information: the radar and the and the squeaks. So it'd be kind of interesting to look at that as, as a model species. He he was a little bit uh, hesitant <laughs> to take it as a model species for bilinguals, but I, I think it would work. So, so you guys want a model system? I mean, there is a sort of a a, a yearning to sort of head in that direction to be able to do more methods and manipulations or, or, or well there's things you can do with animals that you can't do with people <laughs> yeah I mean so that's true I mean my personal belief is that uh, we, we can only progress so far without a, a real understanding of the neurobiology of the system and that's hard to come by in humans plus we tend to forget that we are animals that we evolved that our brains are not something that the Martians implanted in us, and that uh, there should be commonalities between us and the other species. And if you look at the birdsong circuit, for example, I think it's a great model system. They're far away from us on the evolutionary tree, if you will, but um, it turns out there are tremendous homologies in the songbird system and what we think is the human system for language. So I, for one, have been advocating, not successfully in most cases, but I've been advocating for a reconsideration of looking at language uh, in a comparative approach, a comparative way, why not spend sort of against the rules for a long time. 
but I'm ready for a change. <laughs> Dolphins. 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 No, mice. Mice squeak now, right? The mice squeak. Right? They do. Mice squeak. So. <clears throat> I wonder what the per diem charge is on a dolphin would be. <laughs> 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 Go for the mice. <laughs> SeaWorld. It's close by. <laughs> well, thanks so much, guys. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you, Karen Emery, Judy Kroll, Lee Osterhout, Nicole Witcha, Charlie Wilson. I'm your host, Salma Karashi. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Thanks for